morning. There, uh, there are seats up here if you're standing. There are seats here. Uh, you might just scooch in a little bit to make everyone fit, but uh, there are plenty of seats to be had. So welcome. Welcome. My name is Doug Payne. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it, I, I'm thankful to be meeting in a space like this, especially on a day like today, uh, being able to hear you sing uh, God's praises that he will hold us fast because of uh, his love for us in Christ. It's good to hear the saints sing those things and, and affirm that uh, we believe that. The person next to you probably needs to hear you affirming that to them, preaching the gospel to one another. So welcome. Happy Fourth of July, friends. Uh, if you've never celebrated the 4th of July before, you're from another country. It's the day we eat a lot of meat and blow things up. And uh, so that'll be happening later today, celebrating our independence. And uh, if you're from another country, it'd be fun to talk to you about uh, that. Uh, all of our British friends can insert their jokes uh, about uh, our independence from Britain. Uh, but just thankful to be uh, here with you, celebrating a greater independence, a greater freedom that we have in Jesus. Just a couple announcements. One announcement, actually, that I wanted to make. Um, Calvin Presbyterian, who uh, is in North Corvallis, we've used their building before, Partners in the Gospel, another church called Capilla is a, a Spanish-speaking church, and they're putting on block parties uh, the, every Sunday in August, so the 1st, the 8th, the 15th, 22nd, 29th, I think that's right, and uh, they're putting on block parties as a way to invite your non-Christian friends. If you live in the area, you have friends that may be a little intimidated to come to a uh, church service. Uh, it's a good way to invite them to, to meet other Christians in town. And uh, it's a good way for us to partner in the gospel with, uh, with other churches. So they are looking for people to help plan. Just, it's just going to be pretty simple, providing some food. It, you know, can, someone, can some people in our church help provide food, help plan the event, help plan an activity or something? So if you're interested in that, or reach out to me or Gage, and we will um, we'll get you in contact with uh, Zach Washburn and Benji, who's the pastor at Capilla, and they will, uh, yeah, I think it'll be a fun time. I really want to encourage you to get involved in that. It's a, it's a really great way, and it's a, an, an ingenious way to, to get our lost friends, our, our friends that aren't Christians, just to know other Christians, and, and uh, enlisting other people, Christian people, in the community to help us, t- you know, tell them about Jesus. So uh, I encourage you to be a part of that. My family's going to be a part of that. Hopefully, we can even host one in our neighborhood, but... I want to encourage you to, to reach out and be a part of that this summer, starting in August. Okay, so let's pray again, and then we'll, we'll start into the, to the sermon. Father, we, we thank you for the truths that we have already sung this morning. And in one sense, there we have been singing our songs of deliverance. We've been singing about the love of God in Christ Jesus for us that started with the creation of all things. We just want to affirm and praise you that you you created all things for your glory and and you have called us to praise you. We're not not calling anyone to praise you. You are the one who has made the first call. Come, praise the Lord, all the earth, all creatures of our God and King. And as we realize how holy you are, the kind of power you have to create everything by, by your own words, by simply words, we realize how sinful we are. And Father, we come to you confessing that we are not holy, that we have sinned this week in thought, word, and deed. And yet we come hopefully to you as you have called us to come boldly into your presence because of the work of Christ. 
We come to you as the God who is raised to life, to live evermore, to never die again. God, we praise you that you put to death, death. You conquered all of our sin in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you've done that not only for your own glory, but for our good. And we, and we come as those that unless you hold us fast, God, we will fall away. We thank you for this love that we have in Jesus Christ that will hold on to us till the end of our days. We pray that you would help us to persevere in this faith. We need your help. God, hold us fast as we we try to persevere. Assure us of your love for us that we might live holy lives. God, and I pray that you uh, would do that for, God, our members that have gone out from among us this weekend and are worshiping in other places or vacationing. We ask that you give them real joy in you, real joy in the freedom and independence that you've given us in Christ Jesus. For freedom, you have set us free. God, and I pray that they and, and we would enjoy that even, even today as we remind ourselves of the gospel. Father, we pray for, um, God, we just pray for our friends that are, that are working in, in various jobs this summer. And we pray for Simon as, as he'll be volunteering for uh, firefighting and, and fighting the wildfires that will no doubt come. We thank you for men like him and we pray that you'll protect him and keep him. God, we pray for those who will be traveling and taking a break from teaching and, and from being a student. We ask that you, uh, you would help them not to waste the summer, but to be using it intentionally to be pursuing you and helping other friends pursue you. God, we pray that you would uh, give real rest to us this summer. But God, that we would not only rest, but we would be working. We would be pursuing a relationship with you and relationship with our, our friends. God, we not only pray this for our church, God, we also pray for our partners in the gospel here in Corvallis. Thank you for Calvin Presbyterian and the the ministry of the gospel that they have there. I pray that you would help them continue to be faithful to preach the unadulterated gospel. You would help them. God, you'd give them a revival among their members to to speak out for your fame and for your glory, for for the, the good news of the gospel that is through Jesus Christ. We pray for Capilla and that God, even in the Spanish speaking uh, section of our population here in Corvallis, we pray that you give them inroads. We pray that you would help them to model what it is to be a Christian and then witness with their mouths this good news that you have been raised to life to rescue us from, from condemnation. That because of Christ, it is, it is really true that Christians have no condemnation. I pray that they would live that way and they would take this message to our friends in this city. God, and we not only pray for our city, but we want to be praying for even our state and our world. And we ask that you would raise up more gospel preaching churches in Oregon that, are be, that would be faithful to the gospel. We pray for Canby Christian Church and uh, Pastor Aaron Adami. We ask that you would give them success and unity there in Canby as they proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray for our dear friends at Selwood Baptist Church and for Jeff Lassine and the elders there. We ask that you would give them much grace to, to be preaching the gospel as well. 
God, and, and as we join together in the Northwest, Northwest Church Network, we pray that you would, you would help us, give us success uh, in promoting more gospel preaching churches here in the Northwest and beyond. God, and we, we pray for our world. We pray um, that you would raise up gospel preaching churches and true Christians in every continent, in every people group, on this planet. It's all yours. Everything is yours. And and we believe that you have a a plan and a a, a mission to be rescuing sinners for yourself. And we ask that you would do that. Even raise up among us people that would go to the nations and tell of this good news. God, we ask that you would do all of this for your glory, that we at the last day would be worshiping with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, just as you have promised. And we're, we're even somewhat of a fulfillment of that promise. And we pray that you would continue to do that in our world. Father, we, not, um, we would be remiss not to pray for those in authority over us. We, we know that you have told us to be praying for our government. And so, God, we pray that you, in your goodness and wisdom and providence would be helping our President Biden uh, to rule, to govern uh, in justice, in equity, and and that you would surround him with people that truly believe in you and trust you, that he would govern in righteousness. We pray that for our our local government as well. And we ask that you would be with Governor Brown and and her staff. And and God, we thank you for them because you have said you have appointed these, these people to be ruling over us. So thank you for them. We pray that you would help them. We know that you will. And God, we ask that as we open your word, that you would change us, that you would help us to see Jesus Christ our one and only Savior, what he has done for us and how he now has shown us how we should live. We pray that you would be praised and that Jesus Christ would be lifted up and seen as truly wonderful and beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, you know, one of my favorite books I, I try, I've read every other year, I think, is uh, the last, C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, uh, the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia. My systematics professor used to sign his emails between the paws of the true Aslan. I always thought that was a little weird, but it comes from this book, The Last, the last Battle. Uh, you know, there was a pretender king, if you know the story, there's a pretender king who was a donkey, he dresses up like Aslan, but he's, he's hidden from sight. And all of this is due to the, to the ape that wants to control the, the people there. And he dresses up the ape, he, the donkey, he hides the donkey from, uh, from Aslan's people. And uh, the, uh, the ape wreaks havoc on the citizens through, uh, through, through this shenanigan, through this, this ruse through the, re- the reign of the sort of pretender Aslan. And as one of the characters, as they're about to confront this, this untruth, this uh, pretender king, they're about to go through the door. Uh, one of the characters, I think it's Trinian, um, he says to Jill, 
But courage, child. We are all between the paws of the true Aslan. That was meant to provide assurance that 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 Aslan they knew the Aslan they knew wouldn't act like this Aslan, right? Who's who's trying to enslave them and sell them into slavery to other to other peoples. He wasn't cruel. He didn't hide himself. Not like not like this. And those who followed Aslan were meant to have assurance about his true character. After all that he had given up, he had given up after all his own life. Do you remember the story? On the stone table and death began to work backwards. And, and his people, the people under his reign were supposed to know this. There's no way this could be the true Aslan. They were meant to give assurance. After all, take courage, children. We are between the paws of the true Aslan. One of the means God uses to assure his people of his love is by telling them about it. It's reminding them, hey, I love you, right? If you, if you grow up in a good home, you heard your parents say, I love you a lot. And they demonstrated that. God, but even if you didn't grow up in a good home, even if you never heard your parents say, I love you, there is a God, a father who has been demonstrating that for you all along. He, the true God, the true king of the universe, wants to assure you of his love by you rehearsing the gospel, exploring all the wonderful benefits of the gospel. So we just spent over a year in the book of Mark. (laughs) People are laughing. It was good, though. I I enjoyed it. It was 50 sermons, so not quite, you know, a year's worth of Sundays, but almost. Almost. 50 sermons in the book of Mark. And, 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 and we were in the weeds of the gospel, the good news. We were, we were down in it, right? We were, we weren't, uh, we were getting in the monks of the, the forest and in, in the trees and, and sort of looking at the, the bark of the trees. We explored the person of Christ, his miracles. We got close up to the, to the, the real Jesus who came not only to show that he was God, he came as man to suffer and die, and to rise again. So we've been on the street level, getting to know the contours of the gospel. You know, Tim Keller uses this analogy as you, you know, you can do overviews of, of books of the Bible or larger passages, and you can, or you can do what we did in the book of Mark and sort of get down on the street level there. And it's, it's sort of like getting to know a city. There are two ways to get to know a city. You can, you can get on the street level and explore all of the, the avenues and streets and you can explore the grid and you can find out the city by being inside the city and, and getting up close to it. That's one way to explore it. And as a former FedEx driver, I can attest this is true. The more you're in it, the more you pass the stop that you were supposed to stop at, the more you realize, oh, okay, I, I, now I know where I'm going. It's one way to explore a city. Sometimes it's frustrating. Uh, to explore the city that way. Another way to explore the city is to go up uh, to somewhere like Chip Ross and w- hike up, you know, whatever, however long it takes you. I'm not going to tell you how long it takes me. Hike up Chip Ross and look down and you could see the city. It's the same city, but you just get it from a different level. You get different levels of meaning. And uh, th- that is one way. So we've, we've explored the gospel of Mark down on the street level. Now I want to explore the gospel as it applies to Christians and all of its benefits to Christians by taking a bird's eye view of Romans 8. 
And uh, so you can turn there in your Bible. Romans chapter 8. So we've been in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this morning. We want to see how the gospel applies to our lives and all the benefits of the gospel that the gospel has for those who trust Christ. So let's do a flyover of Romans 8. And, uh, and we are going to see how God wants to assure us of his love. God wants to assure us of his love for us so that we live holy lives. So this is basically what I'm going to be talking about this morning. God wants to assure us of his love for us though, so that we live holy lives. And we'll be looking at it through four headings. A life in the spirit, 1 through 13, is definitely not original to me. Life in the spirit, life in the family, number two. Number three, life of hope. Number four, life of eternal love. Life in the spirit, life in the family, life of hope, and life of love. Romans chapter 8 begins like this. There is therefore, because of the good news of Jesus Christ, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what is this life in the spirit? One of the ways God wants to assure Christians of his love is to remind them of the great work he's done in the gospel. So Paul's writing to a group of Christians uh, in Rome, uh, much like actually Mark was writing. We, we think Mark was writing to Christians in Rome, a, ch- a church there. And uh, they're actually writing a similar, similar time frame. And, and, and Paul is writing uh, to, to the Romans to explore uh, the depths of God's love for both Jew and Gentile who have believed the gospel of God's saving grace to Jesus Christ. 
who have turned from Christ to Christ from their sins. But though they believed the gospel, though they had turned to Christ from their sins, they loved Jesus more than they loved their sins, they still struggled, just like Paul. They struggled with their, their sin. They, they trusted Jesus, and, and, and lo and behold, they still had sin to deal with. So Paul writes chapter 7. There's some disagreement about whether this is a, a Christian Paul is talking about or a non-Christian. I, I personally think Paul is, is speaking of a Christian, at least in the second half of, of Romans 7. And uh, he, he, remind, he writes Romans 7 to remind them and himself that the struggle with sin is real. That Christians have, they have, law, they have laws working in them, in their members. And one that makes them want to do right and please God. And, and one and another law that wars within them, the law of sin. The law of sin wars in their members against the, the law of, of life. Making Paul say something like this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this death? Why? Because the things I want to do, I don't do all the time. And, and sometimes the things I know I'm not supposed to do, I do do. And Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this death? Have you ever felt that? And Paul wants to assure the Roman Christians, and he wants to assure himself, and he wants to assure you that though this is true, the, this law, these laws war against each other, and sometimes you ser- serve the law of sin with your flesh, that that is not finally who you are. Paul, Paul says it, you can see it in the end of Romans 7, that he, he, myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. How can he even be a Christian? This causes Paul to be uneasy. If he serves the law of sin with his flesh, how can he be a Christian? And then he dives right into Romans 8, 1 through 13, and gives the Christians at Rome, gives himself and gives you assurance that you can actually have in your struggle against sin. And what does he say? The fact, the bare fact that there is no condemnation. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if we're honest, don't we realize that we've earned condemnation? If God is who he says he is, holy, eternal, creator, isn't it true that we are not holy? We are finite. We are sinners in thought, word, and deed. He found that this week even. And he says, but he says, nevertheless, you are not condemned if you are in Christ. Here's the condition. You want no condemnation? You must be in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation because there is a new law at work. It's not the Mosaic law. It's, it's not your sanctification. It's not you obeying uh, God's 10 commandments that is going to earn you life. Because what, what did Jesus say? We, we, we can't obey them. We haven't obeyed them. And to break one of them is to break them all and to be an offense against a holy God. Romans 5, 12 through 21 talks to us about this. Uh, Adam, the first Adam, brought sin into the world 
And because he did, death passed on all men and women. But what Paul says is that the second Adam, Christ, on the other hand, brought righteousness into the world because of his life. And through his life and death, he won righteousness for all those who will trust in him. This is, like we sang before, a wondrous mystery. No condemnation does not just apply to the past, but it applies to the present. Just notice the words. There is, therefore, what's the next word? Now, no condemnation. Because of the certain and eternal work of Christ on the behalf of hell-bound sinners. There is no condemnation now, and there's no condemnation in the future. Having trusted Christ, having put all of your trust in him, will he in the future condemn you? If he will, there's no good news. So the question is, how did this all come to be, right? We have no condemnation right now. If we're in Christ Jesus, we can explore what that means. Uh, Explore what that means later. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? If you're in Christ Jesus, Paul says, you don't have any condemnation. How? He said it was by the sending of his own son. Those, Those are the words for The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus, the son of God, the eternal son of God, became perfect man. Lived a perfect life in our place. He took the death you and I earned. He died on the cross in your place, in my place, as a substitute. But he didn't stay there. He rose again. There is no condemnation for those in Christ because God condemned our sin in him. God condemned Christ. Everything wrong with you and me, he put into Christ's own flesh and treated Christ as if we were him. As if he was the worst sinner in the world. As if he committed the sins that you committed. God treated Christ like a sinner so that he might treat us like sons and daughters. There is therefore now no condemnation. The result is that the law that was broken is now fulfilled in us. In order, right? He condemned sin in the flesh in order that, in order that the result is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The perfect son of God fulfilled all righteousness for us. He, he did it. And the fact that he, he, he died and rose again he now then imputes that righteousness to us. He declares us righteous on behalf of Christ. That's just what the book of Romans is all about. This, this, the, the, the word repeated throughout is right, righteous, dikaiosune, right, righteous or righteousness. It's justification. How are you made right before God? It's God declaring sinners righteous by his own acts, the acts of Jesus, by applying Jesus's work to your life. The law that was broken is now fulfilled in us. 
God, the thing that God required of us, he fulfilled for us in Christ. Yeah. I've been working out recently. <laughs> I wish you could tell. <laughs> uh, but I wish, you know, someone, someone else could do the workout for me sometimes. Like when I'm at minute 45, I'm like, this is dumb. I never want to do it again. <laughs> but when, you know, when you work out, don't, sometimes you wish that someone else could do the workout and apply, you know, the benefits to you. <laughs> right? I can just sit back and do it. But it doesn't work that way, right? Not with a workout. You have to put the work in. But in salvation, it does work that way. Someone else does the work, takes the death, takes the penalty, and then applies it to you. The law has been fulfilled in us. He treats us like we actually fulfill the law because we're in Christ. We have this connection to him, this mysterious connection. Someone has done what you failed to do and paid the penalty for breaking the law and then credited it, the benefit of his work to you. So maybe a, a more apt picture than the gym is the law court. It's as if God, the perfect judge, stands before you. You are in front of him, condemned, guilty of sin. The judge comes out of the chair steps into the dock for you and says, I will take his punishment for him. Amen. The judge does that. The judge of all the earth comes into the dock for guilty sinners and says, no, I will take it. I will be condemned so he doesn't have to be. So she doesn't have to be. So the result of all this is life in the spirit. God has done all this. There's no condemnation. He's fulfilled the law for you. He's, he's come in, sin, in the likeness of sinful flesh in order that the, the law might be fulfilled in us so that you might be in the spirit, have a life in the spirit. And these Christians and anyone who is in Christ, they live according to the spirit instead of the flesh. Now, Paul has, Paul has just said, sometimes my, I serve the flesh. I serve um, sin with my flesh. Now, as Paul, Paul is saying, though, that because I, I have no condemnation, I have repented of my sins and trusted Christ for forgiveness, that now I, am, I, I have life in the spirit that makes me want to do what is, is right. It makes me want to live in the spirit. It makes me want to follow God's law. It makes me want to live a holy life. So the question, how do you know if you're living in the spirit? Well, do you hate your sin and desire to live righteously? No, Paul is, 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 is cutting us off on, on both sides. He's saying you, you can't earn this, no condemnation. Jesus gave it to you. But you also can't say, you know, I, everyone's a sinner, so it's no big deal. God doesn't care. He, he's telling you, no, there's a new life to be had. It's life in the spirit. It's obeying the spirit and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. But no matter how much you fail, how do you know if you're in the spirit? No matter how much you fail, you know you fail now. And you turn from your failure to Christ alone. So if you are in the flesh, Paul says, you cannot please God. So there must be something about serving the flesh with your mind or, or uh, actually in being in the flesh. That's, that's something different. Because if you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. You don't even want to. You can see 
at the end of this uh, section in verse 13, that this thing, this life of the spirit called sanctification, this, this, where we're, we're, we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. This life in the spirit is progressive. He says, if you put to death the deeds of the body, the language there, the tense of the verbs there is, it, it, it's progressive. It's, it's moving along. It's, it's, a, it's a continual act. You're having to do this over and over again. But it's not only progressive, this, this, this act of living in the spirit it is also, uh, it's actually by the spirit. The spirit empowers you to do all of these things. So what does it look like to kill evil that remains in us? How are we to do that? What does that look like? It is like reminding yourself of the gospel. How how do we put to death the deeds of the body? Preach to yourself over and over again until you learn to apply the gospel to every area of life. Preach to yourself like Spurgeon preached to himself. I am a great sinner. Jesus is a greater savior. So I want to live for him. Preach like Sibs, Richard Sibs preached to himself, saying there is more mercy in Christ than sin in me. Because there's more mercy in Christ than sin in me, I want to please him. Say to yourself like McShane, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He's altogether lovely and excellent. He's altogether beautiful. He's worthy of my holiness. Preach to yourself. But also enlist others to preach to you. Uh, If you're not in an accountability relationship or a discipleship relationship throughout the week, that you meet together, you just ask some basic questions about how you're doing, how, how's your Bible reading going, how, how's your thought life going. I would really encourage you to do that. Who, who are you meeting up with? Just take a moment to think about that. Friends, if you try to do this alone, you're going to come depressed. You can't fight sin alone. You can't live in the spirit alone. You need others to help you. Confess your sins to one another, James tells us. And hold each other accountable. Preach to yourself. Enlist others. And just like you did this morning, come, come to church. Uh, it's, and it, I promise you, it is not so we can get, you know, it's not so we can get butts in the seat. That's not why we're doing it. Uh, it is because you need to be reminded of the gospel week after week in a corporate setting. You, you need to be reminded of the gospel. It's, it's irreplaceable to do this with each other, to sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, it, it, and hear each other's testimonies of, of how we've done this throughout the week. Come to church. Just on a more personal level, I uh, was talking with, with another brother this week, just how do we apply this? Um, how do we live holy lives? God assures us of his love, so we will live holy lives. One of the ways to do that is to replace our sins uh, with something else, right? Paul tells us, Paul and Peter both tell us that we need to do this. Uh, we, we, need to take, we need to take gossip and replace it with truth. We, we need to take lust, replace it with love. So what it, what, as a Christian, 
you need to think, what am I struggling with? This, it's not some like abstract thing like I'm going to put to death this, this thing over here. You can't do that without replacing it with something else. What does God want you to replace it with? Preach the gospel to yourself. Enlist others. Come, come to church. Put off. Put on. That's what he wants us to do. I, I don't know what that is for you. But I would encourage you to meet up with some of this week and, and ask them how they've tried to do it. Read the Bible. Pray. Friend, it is, as we remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and strive to live holy lives, it is vital that we pass on this same kind of grace that we are given to others. This, this no condemnation, this place of, of, of not being accused. We need to pass that on to other people. I'm, you know, it's a real, it's a softball, but like social media. Or do you pl- pass on this place of no condemnation to people who disagree with you politically? Or even about a theological point? Do you pass that on, this grace, this no condemnation on to them? People you disagree with in this church, you know, as in the words of Pastor Ray Ortland, in this world of, this angry world of blaming and shaming, who doesn't need a non-accusing place to stand? Who doesn't want a place of no condemnation both now and forever? Friends, we don't leverage ourselves into that place. God puts us there. He says no condemnation. And now we are able to pass that on to other people. This is one of the greatest corporate witnesses we can have in this day and age. To pass on this, this, this grace to other people. Believing the best about one another, loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another, not cutting people down, building each other up. For the sake of God's glory and the gospel, let's pray for this and do it. So that's a not so brief overview of uh, verses one through 13. We'll move faster. Okay, sorry. Uh, so we'll, we'll move now into a life in the family. That was life in the spirit, life in the family. Very quickly, this will, this will go pretty quick. Uh, God does not just want to save sinners like you and me and then say, good luck, do your best. He, you see, he puts us in the life of the spirit, but he also puts us in a family. Verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So God gives us a new family. He puts us in a family to extend the image, the 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 judge in the law court does not just come down and take condemnation from this person, take their penalty. He turns the person in the dock. He, he takes that person, the criminal, the guilty one, and doesn't just say forgiven. He says family. I'm going to be adopting you. Friend, you have been given the position of no condemnation 
through repentance and faith, you've been made a child of God. He says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So if you feel enslaved to sin, it's either because you are not a Christian and you need to repent and turn to Jesus, or it's because you do not understand what the spirit of God has done for you. He has not given you a spirit of slavery to fall back to fear. He's given you the spirit of adoption. The judge came off the bench and said, you're my son. I'll pay the price. I'm going to bring you into my family. It's this, this is the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you remember where we have heard that term before? In Mark, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the spirit led Jesus to be praying out to his father in the deepest distress of his life, crying out to him, Abba, Father. That same spirit is given to you through adoption for you to cry out to him, Abba, Father, in your greatest distress, in your greatest loneliness, in your greatest fear. Do you think he has forsaken you? No, Jesus was forsaken, so you never would be. He has given us the spirit that helped Jesus cry out, Father, the same spirit that was in Jesus that is now in you. And he testifies to you. He is bearing witness in this law court where you are judging yourself all of the time. He's, 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 he's bearing witness to you that you are children of God. Who is to condemn a child of God? You are a son of God and a brother of Jesus Christ. A sister of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your older brother who has brought you into this family. You're not just a son or daughter, but you are an heir. You, are a, you have full rights of a true child of God. Do you want to know... What is a part of your inheritance as an heir of Christ? Everything. Everything that belongs to Christ is yours. Paul encourages the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 3. Don't boast about men or preachers. They do not matter. If you want to boast about something, boast about your inheritance. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit has applied the work to the lives of Christians and has made them children of God. What else is there to say? That's your life in the family. And that moves us on to a life of hope in 18 through 30. It says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The Bible is the most honest of books. It does not cover up that there's suffering in this life. Paul does not say that if you suffer, it's because you're sinning. He acknowledges that there is suffering in this life. And it makes sense, right, for those who trust in Christ to follow a crucified Messiah, a Savior and King. They understand that he suffered and they're following someone who suffers, so they will suffer. He lived a life, Jesus, of suffering and humiliation. But he did so willingly for the joy that was set before him. So Paul can say this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. He does not deny that there is suffering. He denies that it is greater than glory. Suffering is not greater than glory. The whole creation. It's not only humans who suffer. It's also creation. The creation has been subjected to futility, he says. It awaits the revealing of the sons of God. The creation waits as kids wait for Christmas morning. It waits with eager longing. It knows that one day all things are going to be back to the way it's supposed to be. And that day is the revealing of our adoption day. Verse 23. When, when we adopted Uriah into our family, you know, the, the, we were there the day he was born. He, we became his legal guardians until his adoption day. The day that we were in court and the judge, the lady judge, brought down her gavel and legally declared that Uriah was our son. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, okay? We are not God. We don't adopt our children the same way God adopts us. But the similarity is this. God's adoption of sinners is sure because it's based in Christ's work. God has, has brought us into this family and we have certain hope because he, 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 the work of Christ has made it so that the judge can bring down the gavel and say, you're legally God's child. No one can take that away from you. Your birth certificate is signed. You have been delivered. Uh, and, and you are truly a child of God. But there is an adoption day coming where our, we are going to be revealed in a certain way. We're going to be revealed what the creation has been hoping for. And what we have been hoping for. Full salvation. A full reversal of the curse. The suffering and glory will go on the scale, friends. And, and there will be no comparison. The glory will outweigh the suffering. The life of hope is a life that looks to glory in order to suffer well. 
It doesn't. You don't get to escape the suffering. Jesus didn't escape the suffering. But it, it goes on the scale. And, and, and when we are revealed, when we, our bodies are redeemed, it will show that everything is exactly like it's supposed to be and the glory will far outweigh it. We don't see it now. And how, so the question is, how will we persevere until that day? How will one preserve in this life of hope? The proverb says, hope deferred makes a heart sick. It can make us depressed. It can cause us to doubt. So how will we make it? Verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, the spirit who searches, who knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We will make it, brothers and sisters, who are in Christ Jesus, because the Spirit prays for us according to the will of God. Even when we don't know how to pray for ourselves, he intercedes for us. He's our advocate. And he says for us exactly what the Father and the Son want us to say for ourselves. We know this is all true because we know that he is testifying this truth to us. Those who have placed their trust in Christ for salvation. When I say salvation, I mean that it, he is saving us from his own wrath, which is condemnation. Right? There's no condemnation. Where's the condemnation coming from? It's coming from God on our sins. God in Christ is saving us from eternal punishment with God as our judge. The, the Bible describes it as those who will suffer in the lake of fire, in hell, for condemnation, for what we deserve. For those who are in Christ, those who are living in the family, we have hope because we have no condemnation. We have no eternal punishment. God says that for that person who has no condemnation, because they trust in Christ, all things work together for good. Everything. And notice he didn't say all things are good. He didn't say everything that happens to you is good. There are some really bad things that happen to you. But both the bad and the good, all of them work together for good. This is God's providence, his meticulous working of all things in this earth. The kind of working that would take uh, Joseph being enslaved in Egypt and, and mistreated and maligned, but saving Many people because of his work there. God did that. It's the kind of making all things work together for good. It's the, it's the kind of work that God did in Jesus. The injustice of the most innocent one, the only truly innocent one bearing sins for many. If God can do that, can he not make the bad things that have happened to you work for good? 
Even the worst things work together for good because all things are working to God's greater purpose, which is to conform you to the image of his son. And he says, if you'll notice just the, the few words in, in the, this passage, the, the way we can know that is because there's an unbreakable chain of salvation. It begins and ends with God's actions for his people. Soli Deo Gloria. To God be the glory alone. Notice that God will accomplish his purpose because first he foreknew those who love him. He, this doesn't say he, he foreknew, he, he just knew ahead of time. It, this is the word that means it's action. It's setting his love on them. He foreknew them in a, in a, in a way a husband knows a wife. He's predestined them for this great aim. For, for those he knew, foreknew, he also predestined for this great aim to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is an unbreakable chain of salvation from the time of, of God's foreknowledge to the time of his glorification. For those who he foreknew, he predestined, and those who he predestined, he called. He set his love on them. He predestined them, and then he put it into action. He effectually calls those he loves. Did you ever wonder, if you're a Christian, why you were made to hear his voice when others weren't? Do, do you think it's because of something great in you? Oh, it's, friend, it's not. It's because of something lovely in God. If he calls you, if he foreknows you, predestines you, and calls you, it is sure that he will justify you. Justification is this act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by grace alone. So justification is God's declaring sinners righteous because he chooses to impute Christ's righteousness and death to their account. That's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And this comes to us by faith alone. That's the instrument God brings salvation to us. But not only that, in this life of hope, you're not only justified, you are glorified. Does that make you, does that make you perk up a little bit? What do you mean? You're already glorified? In God's eyes, you are as good as glorified. His work is so sure and complete that he can speak of the Roman Christians and you and I, if we are in Christ, as glorified. Already in our perfected state because of Christ. It is so sure. There's an already not yet component. We still struggle with sin, just like Paul talked about. But it's as good as done, friends. There's, there's no getting in the way of it. You are Christ's. Christ is God's. This is why we must not give up. But why we must persevere. Why you will persevere to the end. Because the one who started it is sure to complete it. You know, I make promises to my kids sometimes that I'm not able to keep it's not intentional. Sometimes I, I, I don't want to do it, but sometimes I, I, I do do it because I'm human and because I, I'm weak. I'm finite. I can't do everything I promise. But God never makes promises he can't keep. 
all of his promises in Christ are in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ. And Paul tells us in Corinthians that all the promises of Christ Jesus are yes and amen in him. So what then shall we say to these things? We who deserved eternal punishment, separation from God, now get eternal love. All because of the work of Christ and the application of salvation to us by the Spirit. Brother and sister, God is conspiring for your good. He means to do good for you. If you're not a Christian, do you think it's a mistake that you were here this morning as we're talking about God's love in Christ for those who are in him? Turn to him and be saved. Friends, at the end of all this goodness is a world of love. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon about heaven being a world of love. For eternity, we will be stepping into an eternal succession, one step after another, into the love of God. We will be experiencing oceans and oceans of the love of God. One wave after another of the love of God washing over you forever and ever. Can you imagine what that's like? True love. Real love. Real vulnerability. Real acceptance. All because of the work of Christ applied to us by the Spirit. Life in the Spirit, life in the family, life of hope, and this life of love. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with us freely, also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, we have gone from no condemnation to no separation. All from the work of Christ Jesus applied to us by the Spirit, being the Trinity's plan all along. The last chapter in the last battle, well, the last two chapters, second to last, is called Further Up, Further In. And he describes as Jill and Eustace and Edmund and Puzzle and Jewel are all moving westward into Aslan's country. The more they go, the more they are overwhelmed by the goodness of this new place. It's similar to England and Narnia, and yet they realize how much better it is. And as they move along all the time, Aslan, they're going to Aslan's greater country. They, they begin to run. And as they come into the country, they are, they're, they're able, their, their hearts are quickened. And uh, they find this, this place that their heart has always desired. 
And they found that they could, they could run and they could, they could keep up with the horses and the unicorns. And they don't get tired. And all the while, it's getting better and better and better. And all the while, you hear the call, don't stop further up, further in, as they explore Aslan's country. They are amazed at how they feel, how everything looks, and how wonderful it all is. Friends, as we explore the benefits of the gospel in Romans 8 and the rest of Scripture, this is exactly what should be running through our mind. Further up, further in. Explore more of this. There are more benefits. There are infinite benefits to the gospel. God means to assure you of his love for you so that you will live holy lives. You will be encouraged and exhorted to live holy lives with one another as a group of people. So don't stop. Further up. Further in, brothers and sisters, the more you explore the assurance you have because of Christ, the greater he becomes to you. And you'll just want to live a holy life. Father, now please apply this sermon to our hearts. God, help us to be loving you more by pursuing you more, by living holy lives. We can't do it without you. So please help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we come to the time in our service where we, um, we have a confession of sin. A personal, uh, we'll do a corporate confession of sin, a personal confession of sin, and then an assurance of pardon. And then we'll take communion together. Our, uh, the reality is, is that we have sinned this week. So I'm going to lead us in a corporate confession of sin. I'll give you a moment of, of silence for personal confession. And I, I, I encourage you to take that time. Think about what the, I'm not going to do it. Trent's going to do it. Thanks for standing up or I would have forgotten. Uh, he's going to lead us in a corporate confession of sin. And then I'll come up and do the assurance of pardon. <laughs> Our merciful Father, we 